0: Oh, man, What a great prayer. Uh, the art of insulting someone and praying for them at the same time is very strong. <laughs> but fair, completely fair. Um, great. Um, I probably say this every year, but I have a massive love-hate relationship with December. Um, anyone else with me? Um, love the anticipation. Love the advent. Um, love the focus on food and drink. Um, good. Hate... The nagging sense of not readiness. Does anyone else have this in December? That I always think in October. I'm always like, okay, this year I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do all my shopping by the end of November, and then I can actually enjoy December. I can actually like enjoy anticipating Jesus without this sense of guilt or like I'm going to suddenly forget one of my really important, um, I don't know, family members like children, yeah, to buy a present for or something like that. Um, but it never happens. Anyone with me? So come this time in December, there's at the same time this, I'm really looking forward to Christmas and oh my goodness, why does it have to be this time of year again? With me? Um, And Christmas what? I know, we need like, and then the problem is, once you're done with Christmas, there's virtually no gap before, you're just straight back into the new year, and what we really need, we need to put like a new month in the year that's just kind of a throwaway month, where we don't try and do anything, your wife doesn't have a birthday, just chill out, and, and, and uh, uh, yeah, um, I try and take August like that, but August never is long enough, so um, we'll need another one, um, good, good. Yes, yes. Um, And so with that comes this kind of thing where in December I really want to have lots and lots of time to think Advent and to think about Jesus coming and to let his coming shape my life, to, to let like to you know that kind of still moment like today we've been doing a great exploration already um in worship of what it means to anticipate and long for jesus and and christmas invites us kind of into that sense of patience and waiting and anticipation but the problem is there's there's hardly any time to do it so we tend to get to like the 24th before we even well i, I don't want to put this on all you guys i'm sure you're way more spiritual than me but before i really kind of sit down and think wow, isn't this amazing? Do you know what I mean? It's actually really hard to do Advent in such a way that you pay attention to Jesus because there's always loads of other stuff going on. Now, I know that none of the rest of you struggle with this. It's just me. Um, But engage... With me, what I want us to do this morning is allow this story to kind of shake us again, just to take a few minutes um, this morning to allow the story of Christmas to actually shake us in a way that we don't always give loads of time to. Is that okay? So, we're not going to do the whole Christmas story, we're not going to cover every theme, I'm going to look at a specific angle. Um, on the Christmas story like a specific way um, that the Bible talks about it and anticipates it and then we're going to let that um, kind of hopefully just poke us over the next few weeks prod our minds um, and, and it will be really good um, once again totally totally agree with Jenny be here next Sunday evening um, be here and don't just be here bring people it's going to be good um, at Forest Hill we are known for a lot of things Um and I don't know professional slickness um is maybe not in the top five and uh, you know sometimes yeah but not always but next Sunday evening we want to do something that you can invite your friends to and know with a good degree of certainty that you're not going to be embarrassed to have them there next to you Um, which I know none of you are afraid of normally at Forest Hill but um, it's going to be really, really great. It's going to be a really good service. So bring someone to next uh, next week, 5 p.m. We're inviting our NCT crew. Um, and so there might be some rowdy babies at the back. Um, that's what we're hoping. So be praying for them. Um, but yeah, whoever you invite bring someone next Sunday evening, and definitely offer to help, because there is so much to do, uh, and it's going to be good. Now, let's have a look at some of the Adventi readings, shall we? Um, If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 9. Just a good bit of the Bible. There's not a bad bit of the Bible, but this is a good bit of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless... Uh, that comes after something uh, which is <laughs> the the people um, of Israel going into exile. Luke talked about their their anticipation, the people of Israel, the Jews um, waiting and longing in a state of um, of of not being fundamentally at home in their own land, so they were waiting, waiting, um, not in a good situation, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past he that's God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are places in the land of Israel, so tribes of the land of Israel. And it's saying in the past, God brought them down. They got invaded by the Assyrian Empire, and bloody, it wasn't good. But in the future, he will honor Galilee, it's another region in the area, um, of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, the geography there isn't that important, but it's roughly, we're talking about the land of Israel, right? So in the past, God humbled it. But it's saying there's, there's this hope. There's a hope in, in their distress and in their sense of exile and in their sense of where is God? You ever look at the news and have a sense of where is God? Of course you do. Um, there's this sense of anticipation here. And then the, pe- the bit that we all know. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Um, now, this is a prophecy, I mean, in the sense that, and the prophecy doesn't always work like this, but in the sense that this isn't happening at the moment. Isaiah is speaking a message of joy to a people who are in despair, to a people who look at, their new, look at the news every day and think, what is going on in the world? To people that look at those in power over them and think, what is God doing here? Those people, Isaiah says, you are going to experience real joy. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, as an ancient enemy of Israel who God defeated, you have shattered, um, you now is God, (laughs) so it's talking to God now, Um, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Um, It's not talking about an egg yoke, but like one of those oxen yoke thing that sits on your shoulders. Um, The bar across their shoulders, oh yeah, explains it for me the rod of their oppressor. So there's going to be something that happens, something that happens that breaks the power of the oppressor over the oppressed. Do you see that in the text? I mean, it's, it's not hidden. <laughs> so there's going to be, so Isaiah's talking to a bunch of people who are ruled over by foreign power, saying to them, one day God is going to do something that breaks that power off you, creating a sense of anticipation. What is he going to do? That does this. And then it says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood. So he's talking about war, right? So he's talking about war. Like, yeah, war is a reality. And it says, Every warrior's boot, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. As in something's going to (laughs) happen that takes you from a context where war is normal and where war is a way of getting things done in the world. Anyone else annoyed at that that's still the truth today? My goodness, it's like we, do, we still don't know what to do with each other. Um, but that's gonna, there's going to be something that happens that makes your armor and your weapons useless. Completely useless for, for everything except firewood. So one day you're just going to be like, oh great, I'll burn them then because I don't need them anymore to fight. What is going to happen that does this, I wonder? Da-da-da-da-da. You see it? It's good, isn't it? For a child is born to us. Oh, that's kind of not how you expect it to go. A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne. Who was David? A king. We'll come back to David. Uh, And over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now this, what I want us to see in this bit, uh, uh, this text, is quite simply this. The language here is explicitly political and explicitly focused on oppression and warfare, Right? Now, we often read the Christmas readings, and we don't think on those lines, but this is blatantly talking about actual war and actual oppression, actual people who are in a situation of slavery and exile, who are away from home, getting actually freed and released. Something's going to happen that does that. Is that cool? It's a very political, very kind of social message. Now, go uh, a couple of chapters ahead to Isaiah 11, um, and there's another uh, advent uh, reading here. Um, it starts at verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Um, oh, by the way, a shoot and a branch are just common ways of talking about a descendant, right? So, I mean... So somewhat a descendant in the line of um, Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad. So we're talking basically about in the line of David again, right? So another son of Jesse. another Dave. Now, um, was David a peaceful king or a violent king? He was a violent king. He got stuff done through war. He got stuff done through battle. He got stuff done um, through having a massive army, and the Lord was with him, and he conquered his enemies. So what kind of expectation is this probably raising in people's minds? We want another one of those. We want someone who's going to come and beat up the baddies, right? Uh, uh, Someone in the line of David. Um, Then this says, um, and this guy's going to delight in the fear of the Lord. It's going to be great. Um, He will not judge. I'm in verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. That's interesting. So again, this other Christmas reading, without any effort at all, goes straight to the kind of political, this guy is going to come and he's going to be on the side of the poor. He's going to be on the side of the needy. He's going to be on the side of the broken. Do you see this? I mean, it's hard not to and again we tend to avoid this stuff we make we make this allegorical so much when we're reading scripture like oh you know everyone's needy and that that's true like it's totally true um But also, this is talking explicitly about the way our world works and the way rich and poor works, the way power and powerlessness works. And it says there is going to be a day where God kind of does something that gives God's yes to the poor, gives God's yes to the broken, gives God's yes to those walking in darkness, gives God's yes to those who are under oppression and gives God's no to those who oppress others. God's no to those who are rich at others' expense. do you see this? Oh dear that's, that's exciting. This is massive, and it's kind of you know socialistic <laughs> in some well, a bit. Do you get me? Do you get me? Okay, good. Um, now how that leaves the question: How is that going to happen? What is God's yes to the poor and God's no to oppressive power going to look like? now you all know the answer so it's easy um (laughs) jesus um but (laughs) but okay like i said the expectation that that creates in people's minds is that there'll be another king like david and like david in the sense of being a military conqueror who rises up And yes, has fear of God, yes, loves loves Jesus, Um, loves loves God, yes, lives with justice, but ultimately a military king. And when the Israelites, when the Jews were waiting for their Messiah to come, their Savior to come, that is what they were waiting for. And they weren't just waiting for that because they were silly, or they'd they'd obviously misunderstood the text. It seems to say that, doesn't it? So then, how, mu- how shocking it is when we get to the New Testament and conversations start happening where, <laughs> where it becomes obvious that that's not going to be how he comes. So, like, um, God appears to um, Mary, this teenage single girl. You're thinking, well, what's, what's she going to do about it? This is, this is one of the powerless ones. Like, this is a young female, she has no power, no authority, why is God going to talk to her? Or like Zechariah in the temple, who yes, he's a priest but he's never had kids and he's an old guy. So in terms of like the, that, that society where the expectation was that your role is basically have kids, have kids, have kids, he hasn't contributed, he hasn't done that and so his life, when he ends, he won't have any lineage, his influence will be over and and God appears to him as one of the powerless ones. Isn't that interesting? Or the shepherds who are out um, watching their flocks by night and, and then the, um, the angels come and appear to them. These are the lowest kind of working class guys. They're just normal people doing a rubbish job. It's like God showing up at um, Oh, now, now i've just cussed every job so i can't i can't say um but these are just kind of uh, teenagers on a you know one of those apprentice jobs where they pay you no money and get and they're allowed to um and uh, there's no kind of expectation on them or whatever god's like hey who should i who should i tell about this birth of this jesus i'm gonna tell them he's starting at the bottom isn't that weird isn't that weird um and here's the this is, this is why it's cool, is, is you expect God to come and solve the problem of oppression and solve the problem of rich versus poor by coming as a, okay, like when you watch an action film, you know when you watch, how many of you like action films? I love action films. And you know how the baddies always have to do something really bad at the beginning so that you want them to get their comeuppance right so so always like they'll end up killing like you know the hero's brother or something like that and the reason is so that you can stand by the hero and be like kill them so that you can you know and make it slow like you know um, and, and then you spend the whole film wanting the baddie to get their comeuppance but here's, here's the reality of when power works like that. Um, and we've seen it in every revolution in human history when, when, when there's been an unjust power in place. is Someone will rise up, and they'll get the favor of the people, and they'll be like, hey, I'm going to rescue us from the unjust power. So they'll gather a little army of people, and they'll go in and do a little coup. Well, I mean, it's probably more bloody than that, but they'll, they'll have a little coup. They'll replace the unjust ruler, and then they'll say, hey, this is a new day for this country. Isn't it great? You're all free. Except then what happens? You all know the story. <laughs> is the same thing happens over and over and over again. If, if, if oppressive power is replaced by oppressive power, the cycle just perpetuates, doesn't it? And so God undermines it completely in Jesus by overcoming power with weakness, by overcoming the massive with the tiny, by overcoming the rich with the poor. Uh, there's this cool quote that I've got. Um, I've not read the book that this comes from. I just heard the quote. So I'm not, this is not a full endorsement of the book that I haven't read. Um, but sounds good from this. Um, it's a, a lady called Marion Woodman. And she said this. Psychologically, there is no victory through domination. Just think about that phrase for a moment. Psychologically, there is no victory through domination. In other words, when the human pattern of replacing power with power just keeps happening doesn't get us anywhere it doesn't get anyone anywhere there is no such thing as triumph by force even if that force is elegantly disguised domination is domination and then she says the dominated one eventually becomes another dominator and there's this beautiful phrase at the end who is abandoned outside the civilizing influence of love that beautiful i'm going to read it again i'm going to do a nigel and read it again because it's so good Psychologically, there is no victory through domination. There is no such thing as triumph by force. Even if that force is elegantly disguised, domination is domination. The dominated one eventually becomes another dominator who is abandoned outside the civilizing influence of love. And so, as Richard Ross says, Jesus comes and he undercuts dominative power at its source by not dominating. Now... It's annoying in some senses because we want Jesus to come and actually just get something done, don't we? We want him to come and finally overthrow those people who are oppressing all those people. And what does he come and do? He comes and undermines it by becoming poor. Tom Pickering was talking at Sound the other night, and he was talking about this, basically. Um, And he said, isn't it amazing? And, you know, it's something I've heard before, but he put it really well and better than I will now. which is not like him. Like if you knew him, you know, you'd think that I would have the edge on the communication front. I think, um, but he. <laughs> now I forgotten what he said. Um, but he 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 spoke about how when when the king is coming, this this expected Messiah, he would have always expected him to be born in the capital city where power is in Jerusalem, but instead he is born in Bethlehem. Do you remember the word from Micah? But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, who like. Though you are small, do you remember this? Though you are small among the clans of Judah, from you will come the Savior. God's picking the not the big place where you expect royalty to come, but the small place. Why? Because he's redefining what it means to be in power. Or um, you'd expect him to be born in a palace, and instead he's born in, we're not quite sure, <laughs> stables slash downstairs room where the animals slept in a house. There you go. I did that whole story, uh, just nice and quick. Um, but it's not where you expect. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want to be the kind of king that we expect. Um, or, um, and the fact that he uses the shepherds as the first people to come and herald this king, rather than like a royal um, welcome party. In fact, where are the royals in this story? Where are the royals? In the palace, and what are they doing? They're trying to find a way of stopping this kid, aren't they? Do you remember? Um, and this is what really concerns me. Um, is oh no, we'll come back to that. Come back to that. Stay on track. Thank you, Ellen. Keep praying. Um, so, so um, Jesus is, wants to bring His kingdom not by coming in power, but by coming as a little one, and He, in doing so, shows us what power really means, what power really looks like. Uh, in many ways, I feel like sometimes we forget how ridiculous our two main festivals are as Christians, which are Christmas and Easter. They are both absolutely ridiculous. In one, we celebrate God being born and laid in an animal trough. <laughs> to an unmarried, or then, uh, at, in the time, unmarried. Wait. At conception, unmarried. Teenager. Huh, that's weird. We forget the scandal, don't we? And in the other, we celebrate the fact that this guy then died. <laughs> and and rose, absolutely, and rose. <laughs> I'm not forgetting the resurrection, and there is glory in it. But we remember that he died, and the symbol of our faith is the cross. And these two things, they're not they're not Jesus saying, I'm powerful but I'm going to play it down to be nice to people. They're him showing us what it means to be powerful. Does that make sense? There's a difference. He's redefining what power should be because we will never break out of our craziness if we keep defining power our way. And there's the, you Remember Philippians 2, there's this lovely bit um, where it talks about your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let me turn to it. I lost my notes. Um, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be clawed onto, um, but made himself nothing. Um, now that word, made himself nothing, in Greek is a word called kenosis. Because everyone say kenosis. And it means self-emptying. Now there's been a lot of talk in the theological circles, which I know a little about, and I dabbled. Um, in theology, um, about what Jesus emptied himself of when he became a human. Did you ever have these kind of philosophical discussions about what Jesus was like as a kid? Did he know all his time tables just off by heart by virtue of being God, sort of thing? Could he see the future? Did he know what was in your soul? Did he um, could he have told you Einstein's theory of relativity because he wrote it, you know, but and people sort of get like so. Maybe he emptied himself of his omniscience, which is his ability to know everything, and his omnipotence and his omnipresence, and just became in a little baby. Does that make sense? And so, in some sense, people talk about which bit of God did Jesus lose when he emptied himself? It's to become slightly less gaudy on the earth. Does that make sense? Are you with me? I think that argument is fundamentally flawed. (laughs) I think that what Jesus did, what the word emptied himself means, is not that he became less Godly, but that he showed us the nature of God. God isn't the fullness from which Jesus empties himself. God is the emptying of himself. Does that make sense? Now, I'm on the verge of heresy, <laughs> and I'm aware of that, but I think the scandal is there. I think, I think I'm think i right. <laughs> I think that Jesus is showing us the nature of the heart of God, which is humility, which is self-emptying, which is abandoning self. It's so other to what we um, know and to what we want, but it's so what we need. Kenosis. There you go. You learned some um, Greek. Um, and so to, to, to lead us in the way of love, I love um, what Zechariah says at the end of uh, Luke, I think it's Luke 1, um, and he, he's um, prophesying over his little boy who's called John. Right, and this little kid's just been born to him, and he, you know, he knew he couldn't have a baby, and he's just had one. Uh, so he calls it John, and he says, uh, "You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. Um, tender mercy, what a beautiful little phrase. Tender mercy. Um, do anybody remember that Graham song, Graham Kendrick, tender mercy?" You have shown us joy to all the world. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) nice. doesn't (laughs) recognize it because I did it so badly. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Where did you hear that phrase before? Isaiah 9, that's right. Um, And in the shadow of death to guide, and then he just says this at the end, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Humanity will only be guided into the path of peace by a king who is peace. We will only be guided into the path of the abandonment of oppression by the civilizing love, to use that phrase from the quote earlier, of Jesus. By him stepping into emptiness, stepping into nothingness, stepping into obscurity, stepping into a people in exile, in slavery. And by showing us that actually... (laughs) It's not by rising up and taking power that things get sorted in the world. It's by serving and becoming low and dying. That is the only way, and it's the Jesus way. And here's the ironic thing. is the only people who are able to see it are the ones who are desperate, are the ones who are broken, are the ones who need help. All the people in the story who get it, who see Jesus and who welcome him, are the low ones the broken ones the hurting ones the lonely ones Anna in the temple whose, whose husband died a few years after they got married and now she's 80 and she's just been there her whole life in the temple waiting that place of brokenness means that when she sees Jesus she recognizes him it's the same for all the others. But there's this also this really worrying element for me is the people who are most similar to me in position, at the very least, not in dress sense. I think they look quite different. Um, but to me, in position in the story would be the teachers of the law, Right? The people with authority in religious sense, like me. Um, authority in Forest Hill is a small authority, but um, nonetheless, the people who are most similar to me in kind of this professional religious role, where are they in this story? Do you remember? Matthew tells us the story of the Magi from the east, these um, these uh, non-Jews. They're just a different religion, different faith. They travel all the way to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then they come to Jerusalem, and they, te- they say in Jerusalem, they start talking about it. Where's the king that's just been born? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. And everyone's like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And the, pri- the priests hear of it, and Herod, the king, hears of it. And Herod, of course, it feels like that's a threat because he's the king. So he calls the priests and the teachers of the law to him and says, hey guys, where is this Messiah? I want to I go worship him. You know, I just really want to go lay my crown down at his feet and stuff. And, and, and they give him the right answer. Okay? They give him the right answer. They know the story of Christmas. They say he's coming in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and you can, he's just 20 miles down the road, really, Herod. You can go see him. And then do you know what we hear of them after that? Nothing. So you've got these bunch of religious guys who know that Jesus has come, <laughs> who know that a king has been born, who've heard the signs, and who know the answers, and yet they do not go and worship him. They're not impacted by it. Life just carries on as normal and the danger is if you're doing fine that's quite likely how you'll be at christmas if you're not broken if you're like me your just life is pretty pretty okay most of the time pretty comfortable and maybe things are going fine for you the likelihood is that by nature we will let this whole thing pass us by because we don't need it because we don't need a humble king thank you very much i've got it made myself does that make sense and so we should hear this, this, this welcome of the broken who, who notice Jesus. And then this challenge of, oh gosh, I don't want this to pass me by. We just sung a song um, that, um, that ends, how silently, how silently, no it didn't end, the third verse. How silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. And then it says, no ear may hear his coming. It doesn't come in a really dramatic, loud kind of way. But it says, but in this world of sin, in this broken world, where meek souls, meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. It's just this really beautiful picture that if we humble ourselves, give Jesus the time, give Jesus the patience he wants to actually enter into our lives and actually change us from the inside out. He doesn't want to force himself on you and change you from the outside. That's not how he works. It never works because that would just be repeating the cycle. But instead, he wants to humbly come and love you and change your heart. So that those bits of your life that are still bound up <laughs> in the way that this world does power and in the way that this world does fame, you can just let it go let it go and receive him and his way isn't that cool so let's try and make sure that we do that this Christmas as Ellen said I think it was you said this earlier that um ironically this time of year with all the family and the gifts and the shopping we can actually let those things keep us the things that we do to celebrate Christmas can keep us from the meaning of Christmas let's not do that let's be a people that are listening um, because the fate of the world <laughs> is in the balance. Um, and Jesus needs meek people. He can only do it through people who are meek, through people who recognize their own powerlessness. Is that good? Oh, wow, I landed, apparently. Um, shall I pray or someone else pray? And shaking her head. I'll pray. Your prayer obviously worked, though. I think I stayed relatively on track. Oh, that's good. Jesus, thank you for the scandal of of Christmas and in coming in such, just such a, I feel like only you could have written this story, God. Like, because we would never write it like this. We would have you swooping down and getting your vengeance on the baddies. And you didn't do that. All the way through your life, you just took evil on yourself. And even in death, you said, Father, forgive them. And so, Lord, we come to you as this um, beautiful picture of powerless power, as this overturner of oppression by carrying oppression. And we want to, I want to have my heart aligned to where yours was. I don't want to live life playing the ego game, playing the um, how much can I get game, playing the who can I keep below me game. I want to see things your way and Lord we so need a church that is broken and humble we so need a church that can actually be good news for a world that's hurting and we we corporately say we're really sorry where we've not done this right and where we've used your message as a way of oppressing people as a way of keeping people low as a way of um, making people feel like there's a kind of us and them Lord, we're sorry. That's not you, and we invite you into our into our. <laughs> we invite you into Christmas. What a ridiculous thing to say, but we respond to your invitation, as you say, come, um, and come and become the outsider. Come and become poor, and we say yes. Okay, great. We want what you have, Lord. Amen.